Welcome to Garden DC, the podcast about everything gardening in the Washington DC and Mid-Atlantic region. I'm your host, Kathy Gents. I'm the editor of Washington Gardener Magazine, and we're aimed at gardening enthusiasts, people who grow everything from edibles to ornamentals, natives to exotics. If it grows in our area, that's what we talk about. This week on the Garden DC podcast, we're joined by Ashley Edwards. She is a horticultural extension agent for the Virginia Cooperative Extension. She serves the needs of producers along with the production, harvesting, marketing, and distribution of vegetables, small fruits, tree fruits, alternatives, specialty crops, and greenhouse crops. And that last one is what we're going to talk to her about today is greenhouse production and growing and also how home gardeners might have a greenhouse and what special needs and um, uses they could have for that greenhouse. So welcome, Ashley. Thank you. Excited to chat with you today. Great to have you here, Ashley. So before we dive into all things greenhouse growing, uh, let's talk a little bit about you and your career. So were you born with a green thumb or chlorophyll in your veins? I guess you could say that. Um, I grew up on a vegetable farm, so I always had that uh, crop production background, so most of my knowledge was kind of like boots on the ground, I guess you could say. Um, And then I was actually an agriculture education major in college, and so I feel like my role with extension is a a really good mesh between the two of my um, background, um, farm experience, you know, personal farm experience and then my education really blends together well to serve me in this role. Most of my crop knowledge is from uh, vegetables, but, you know, with my with my current role with extension as horticulture agent, that's that's pretty broad. So I have learned a lot about different crops just um, just since I've started in this role. Um, A lot of that has been uh, with tree fruit. So that wasn't something I had a lot of experience with um, personally, but, you know, throughout extension, I have learned, and I've, anytime there's a professional development, I pretty well jump on that. You know, just kind of as your listeners, I'm sure, I love to learn and uh, continue to learn even in this role. So uh, with extension, one of my, my key things to tell folks is I may not know the answer, but I know who does. So I will get, I'll figure it out, and I'll get back with you. Great. And I see that you're based in Hillsville, Virginia, and you're your bio says you're a lifelong resident of Carroll County. Can you describe what section of Virginia that's in? Sure. Um, so we're in the southwest part of the county. Um, to explain it so everyone would pretty much know, I would say I'm about an hour south of um, Virginia Tech. So I'm right in Carroll County, so we're in a unique area where we're close to the intersection of both 70, Interstate 77 and 81. Uh, we can quickly be a lot of places, but we're also very rural and lots of agriculture. It's our um, number one uh, industry in, in my county and in many of the surrounding counties. So it's uh, very important and it's really, um, I feel like I'm very blessed to be able to work in the county in which I grew up. We have lots of vegetable pump, uh production, mainly pumpkins is actually kind of our our claim to fame now. Southwest Virginia has um, the most pumpkin production of the whole state of Virginia. Oh, wow. Maybe we'll have to have you on another time just to talk all about pumpkins. That'd be all right. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I'm sh- those giant pumpkins are always fascinating to me of growing those big, big, big ones and, and how that happens. And so I see you also, when you were at Virginia Tech, you minored in animal science as well. So in your ag degree, so that was for poultry or other animals? Yeah, well, um, my degree, um, it was um, geared to prepare you for a career in as a high school agriculture teacher or a career with an extension. So I was really set up great either way. I chose um, horticulture and animal and poultry science as my minors just so that I could be pretty broad so I would know a little bit about everything because I thought you know if I were to teach high school agriculture it was I could teach a variety of classes and that would kind of set me up with some good background knowledge and all of those topics also it was a personal interest of mine um, I grew up we had cattle on our farm as well and then my husband and I raise cattle now still so that still serves me every day hmm. and do you have chickens since I see the poultry there we don't have chickens um the degree was just animal and poultry sciences, so I learned about poultry production some in my classes, but don't have any uh, production actual experience with poultry, <laughs> other than in college. <laughs> Darn, because I was going to ask you for some of that fresh chicken manure, because... Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, we we're, were in the wrong end of the state for that one. <laughs> yeah, we were just talking to some readers on, on our... Um, magazine listserv that we maintain our google group about sources for fresh chicken manure and aged and bagged chicken manure and and what a great resource that is for the vegetable garden oh for sure Hmm. so turning to our topic of greenhouses i guess the the first question i would have if you were a home gardener thinking about having a greenhouse on your property is what is the best place to site it? Should it be a full sun location? Should it be connected to another building or freestanding? What would be your first concerns? Uh, with a greenhouse, your first concern is going to be sunlight. Typically, you're going to be most concerned about the winter sun, just because with a greenhouse, the intent with this structure is more for year-round growing. That would be like versus a high tunnel or a, or a passive structure, which we can discuss briefly if that comes up. But um, so as far as orienting it, you want to think about where the sun is in the winter and in the summer. So the side, if you're going to orient the house or the greenhouse in relation to your house, the number one or the most ideal spot is on the south side of your home and that's just because it's going to be able to receive the most sunlight there versus any of the other sides if that area is used up or unavailable or something else the next best would be the east side you really want to avoid the north um, anytime just because that's going to be away from the sun any time of the year we've got there's some good graphics if you were to look that up online that kind of show where the sun would be at any given time of the year and you can visualize Oh, okay. So if I put the house here, then as the sun moves from east to west throughout the day, I can picture how the shade is going to affect the plants inside when you take into account like the trees and other structures maybe in your yard around the greenhouse. Hmm. Yes, that was the next thing I was going to ask was about trees. So if you had large deciduous trees versus evergreen trees, um, those would be fine if they were on the south side because they would be dropping their leaves. Yeah, it's actually desirable to have some afternoon shade, especially in the warmer months. 
So um, if you've got some deciduous trees in your yard um, nearby, that's, that can be good. You want that shade because it will be shade in the hottest part of the year, but then in the fall and in the winter, those leaves are gone. And so you are getting that additional sun when you need it most. The concern is just having them too close to the greenhouse so that if in poor weather or dying trees or what, what have you, if those limbs were to fall, you don't want it to be close enough to damage your house or the greenhouse. Yeah, I can imagine falling limbs could do a lot of damage. So maybe we'll dial back a little and talk about the hoop house and the other structures you mentioned, because uh, maybe greenhouse is a bigger investment or more of a commitment than some home gardeners want to make, but they still want to be growing things, uh, you know, off season or starting their seeds early inside to transplant out. So maybe we can talk about starting with, say, a hot box or any type of other small structure that they could start with and then move up to hoop house and greenhouse and define those different categories. Yeah. The first consideration that I would recommend is just to think, what is your, your goal? Are you only wanting to grow some transplants just for that um, to get started a little earlier? Or are you wanting a structure that can protect maybe some of your houseplants or other sensitive plants throughout the entire winter? You really have to consider what it is that your goal is in order to know what type of structure will serve you best. So there are lots of different ways that you can protect plants, and that can even be as simple as just um, like floating row covers and, and things that you can put over your garden just to give them a little bit of extra frost protection, for instance. Um, moving into those um, hot boxes, or it almost looks just like a little glass cage. Like a cold, a cold frame? Cold frame, thank you. Yeah, that you can just have on the ground and just kind of protect those plants, and then the lid will open and shut. You can move into window boxes, which are or window greenhouses. There are different terms for it, but essentially it's like replacing one of the windows in your home with this mini greenhouse. So it juts, it juts out and just provides a little a little platform surrounded by glass where you can have like a mini greenhouse and start some transplants and mm -hmm. um, those and they're also really cute. Yeah. Yeah. And those I've seen so you can just pull out say a window that's on the south side of your house mm -hmm. and then it's like like you said it's like a glass box that you could put maybe three glass shelves in and that would be something that you could winter over orchids or some small tropical plants in nothing large though. Right. That one um, is just for a handful, but it's really, I think, more for aesthetic purposes. Um, it just would be like, imagine that over your kitchen window. I just think that would be so cute <laughs> to have some plants there. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like you mentioned, um, the south or east side of the house is really critical for that because that's where the, the sunlight is going to be. Hmm. And then the next step up from like a cold frame outside would be like a hoop house type structure. Yeah, so there are a couple of different words to describe those. Um, you'll hear hoop house, high tunnel, cold frame, um, but essentially they're all talking about um, a temporary structure that is pretty much always it's covered in plastic, and it's the key thing here is that it's passively heated and cooled. So that means um, you do not have any electrical heat or any any systems like that thermostats, none of that like you would in a greenhouse. You are completely relying on the system itself, meaning the like the raising and the lowering of the sidewalls to allow the wind and natural airflow through the house to cool it down. 
Um, another key distinction there is that um, a high tunnel is the crops inside are being grown directly in the ground or in raised beds. They're not intended for like containerized plants. That's, that's one thing to note, but they are a lot cheaper to install. Like I said, they are like considered a temporary structure. They're not glass. They, they can be metal framed. Like you'll have the metal um, tubing and the poles and stuff, but the structure itself is covered in, um, in plastic. And similar to the greenhouse, you do want to think about sunlight. So when you're orienting like a, a high tunnel, sunlight is important, but unlike a greenhouse, it's not the number one consideration. I mentioned that a high tunnel is passively ventilated. So your number one concern really needs to be, how can I maximize the wind flow here? So when you're orienting a high tunnel, you want to consider like where the crosswinds blow through your property, the prevailing winds, because we want that structure to be kind of perpendicular to the way the wind blows. That way you can quickly adjust the temperature inside those houses because you don't have the um, fans and the thermostats and the active cooling systems like you would in a greenhouse. Yeah, that's a great point. And the, we should also talk about low tunnels as opposed to high tunnels, but that's a great point to keep the wind in mind, especially if it comes howling around the northwest wind coming down and shreds that plastic covering that you would have over it. I'm imagining that it's usually attached with Tyvex or maybe held down on the sides with bricks or something. They, I think, are, uh, they actually have like wooden bases. I have to, I've got some really good uh, presentations on high tunnels and um, I work really closely with um, a fellow that He's our specialist from Virginia State University. That's our um, extension partner. And he has done a lot of workshops for me, both in person and virtually on high tunnels. And so he is really my go-to for like construction type. The, I think the key thing for a high tunnel to, to know is that they are not intended to be there, um, but for like a couple years. Like they're not designed to be permanent the way that a greenhouse is. Mm-hmm there will be some more maintenance involved. And I know later on in our discussion, we're probably going to talk about the plastic coverings and stuff of, of greenhouses, but same thing with high tunnels. That that plastic is not going to last but just a couple of years. So that's something to consider as well. Mm-hmm. And with a low tunnel, that's usually maybe two and a half, three feet high, not meant for you to be able to walk in. Um, just something to protect, say, a raised bed or a road that's in the ground. Yeah, they're really used for, like, frost and freeze protection um, and, and can be for wind as well. They're a little bit different than, like, when you think row covers for, like, insects and pest control. These are plastic, and you can just move and open and shut these plastic coverings over these the framing um, mm -hmm. to, to allow the heat and sun to escape. Yeah, and that's a great point, though, that on hot days in the wintertime, so, it, you know, all of a sudden you could have a temperature spike one day, that with the high tunnel and the low tunnel, you are the vent system, right? You can't just program it in like in a greenhouse to open and close the vents. You have to actually manually go out there and open it up in the morning and close it at night or adjust it throughout the day. Yeah, um, and... I know with, with greenhouses, too, um, a big consideration is just knowing how much time you have to monitor the environment on the inside. So 
there are ways that you can put in systems that don't necessarily run off of electricity, but they do like have a thermostat and then they will actively like open and close vents for you just based on the, the temperature. With high tunnels, yeah, you want to, it's all by the side curtains. It's, it's you going in there, opening the doors, opening up the side curtains and letting the, the wind um, passively adjust the ventilation within the structure. Mm-hmm. And even for cold frames, I've seen a couple gadgets that will lift up like the window that's on top of your cold frame that will just kind of crank it open a couple inches when the temperature inside reaches a certain degree and, and it'll be automated, but that's just kind of a fail safe in my opinion. Yeah. I, I'm glad you, you said the word automated. My sometimes my words are escaping me a little bit, but that's kind of what I was trying to explain that there are systems that you can put into place that I guess you could call your, your fail safe where it they'll open um, I, I was doing some research on one that, like the vents that you can have on the top of your greenhouse that will kind of let that hot air escape out of the top, and they will um, expand. This is like a wax piece that expands based on how hot it gets, um, but it's not controlled by like electricity. It's just, you know, that that fail safe. But also, by the time that kind of stuff is happening, you can still sustain plant damage because it's of how hot it can get in these structures before you even realize it. So it's very important to have monitoring systems, especially in these greenhouses where you know it's something you might forget. Whereas, you know, a high tunnel, you're going to, that's the point of the structure is to go out there and raise and lower those side curtains. Um, So you want to have your greenhouse system set up so that that does not happen to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I know some greenhouses are so sophisticated these days that they can send a notification to your smartphone or send you an email and tell you that something is wrong or something is off on the temperatures or that you need to come in and and adjust things. That's right. I can remember growing up, I I told you all that that we grew vegetables on my farm, but we had three greenhouses um, that we used to grow our transplants, our cabbage and broccoli transplants mainly. And so we had these structures out there um, and we would start sowing our plants in February. You know, February in Virginia is cold. It's cold. (laughs) So we, um, those structures were heated using um, propane, propane heaters. And so many sleepless nights when we had really, really poor weather where my dad would go out hourly to check on those heaters to make sure that they were still running because that was our entire livelihood relying on the power not going out and relying on these heaters working. And so having these automatic systems that can notify you, I can just imagine if we had had those back then, how much less stress we would have had growing up. Mm -hmm. That does bring up power supply questions. So if you have a power outage and your greenhouse is being heated, um, what can you do? Well, I would, most of these types of heaters, there are different ones. So I know um, some of the newer, I guess, greenhouse improvements. I was doing some reading about some solar options. Um, Of course, with backup generators, that's what we had to use when our power would go out. It's just kind of, you have to think about how much money you have in in the crop inside. There are different ways to heat, including um, using fueled sources, like if you had like kerosene heaters and things like that, that could mm-hmm. be an option. But you have to pay attention to the ventilation with those as well, because that could be dangerous for you, um, not to mention the plants from having like ethylene, too much ethylene inside that's coming from these uh, heaters and things like that. Mm-hmm. 
And so I remember reading about some Victorian era greenhouses and they use steam pipes underneath like hot water running through. Mm-hmm. And that's how they do those, the old fashioned ones. And I can imagine you could still do that the, these days. Yeah, steam steam is one way that they can be heated. The way I am the most familiar with, just because it's what I grew up with, we had the propane heaters, but they they were really large relative to like what a backyard greenhouse would be. So um, you are, I feel like, have an easier or have more options to heat. Also, the way you heat your greenhouse is really going to depend on where it's located. Um, we haven't talked about this yet, but for the home greenhouse, a lot of your heat could come just from your actual house where you live um, if you have your greenhouse close enough to it. So some of the some greenhouses are even built to where they are right flush with a door or a window to your actual home. So they're using the heat from their house to heat their greenhouse just by leaving the door or that window open. Now, of course, that's going to make your home heating bill higher, but you have to consider, would that be cheaper than actually having to put in a separate heating system and if the structure were to be a separate structure, not attached, attached to my house out further away? So you just, it's something to consider. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the other thing that we didn't talk about when you're first siting your greenhouse, besides having it maybe connected to your house or separate, is the level of like having it on a flat plane. Um, what you could do, either it's on bricks or a, on a concrete floor. How else do you um, do the flooring for the greenhouse? With flooring, it's important. You want to consider cleanliness, uh, humidity, comfort, all, all of the above. I think the most recommended thing really would be like crushed gravel, like really small pea gravels, um, because that's going to minimize the risk of having like other fungal stuff going on versus like if you had just bare ground or mulches, things like that. Also your humidity and this amount of organic matter that just gets gets hot and decaying in there. So that's, it's an improvement to have the gravel over that. It's not very uncomfortable to stand on as compared to like if you had concrete or something. Um, Our greenhouses at home had really, really, really tiny little gravels so that you could pack it pretty flat so you had a really nice flat surface and then we actually covered it with like a a black um, almost like a landscape type fabric Um, and then or also just like a black uh, plastic covering and we we had that really just to to keep it clean and to keep weeds and stuff from growing in there as well. Hmm. I'm glad you said the word weeds Ashley because I think a lot of people don't know that you still have to weed inside a greenhouse. Yes, and I, from experience with it, with our greenhouses at my parents' farm, we had the greatest weed trouble was right along the outer edges of the greenhouse. So they were like poke out from underneath. It had like a um, a wooden wooden frame at the base and they would just come through there and you'd be amazed at how many could poke through that fabric and come through on the sides and and that's no good also just for pest control you want to really minimize the weeds on the outside of your greenhouse I know if it's in your yard you're probably and if you're an avid gardener I'm sure you're you're probably going to be tending to your yard pretty frequently but keeping keeping tall grasses and things mowed and weed-eated around your greenhouse are really going to minimize like rodents and stuff wanting to come into your greenhouse. It's something you might, you just might not think about, but um, getting rid of that habitat for them is very important as well. 
Good point. Yeah, I do notice that around um, the high tunnels too and the hoop houses that that's exactly where every plant wants to germinate is mm -hmm. on that right on that tight edge that's super hard to weed on that border. Yep. And of course, because it's warmer there <laughs> and you want to be there, every plant wants to be there. I want to talk also, we talked about if you lose electricity, what you might do in that situation. But let's talk about snow and snow load and snowstorms. Snow is, um, can be one of your biggest enemies with the greenhouse, really. I feel like in the last couple of years, we haven't had the crazy snows um, like my parents talk about having had. But mm -hmm. it really doesn't take a whole lot to really damage these structures. So if you know that you're kind of in an area where you get a lot of or frequent snows or heavy snow, wet snow, and you have a greenhouse, there are a couple things that I would, I would recommend. First off is before you even install a greenhouse, consider its shape. So if, if you're somewhere where you know snow might be a problem, consider like an A-frame. So it's got really steep sides that that snow is just going to shed right off um, versus like a Quonset or like the U, classic U shape. Those will can hold snowpack and it's it can really damage those those the bows in that structure and really cause a lot of damage to it if that snow gets packed in if you do have like a Quonset shape or one that doesn't shed snow that well running the heaters ahead of time if let's say you don't even have plants in there but you you want to protect that structure you can run the heat in there to kind of melt that snow a little bit before as it falls going out there in the snow with a broom I have taken a large like a really wide push broom before and just very carefully because you don't want to poke holes in the plastic but just very carefully pushing on that plastic to get that snow to just slide off I know it's, it's a little more work but you've got money in these structures so you want to you want to protect them but really your first and foremost thought should be uh, the shape so A-frames are going to be the best at shedding snow probably followed up by the the gothic style where it has more of that uh, tippy point and then kind of like cascades downward that will be the next best as compared to the to the u-shaped Quonset style yeah and i do recall our polar vortex type storm that we had several years ago where it was several feet in one mm -hmm. day and that friends with greenhouses wholesale operations they were literally up all night just pulling snow down layer after layer because uh, more than six inches would have broke through those it's, it's insane how heavy, how heavy the snow can pack. And a plastic-covered structure will be affected worse than glass. That's, that's something to consider as well. Hmm. And now that we're talking about the material, so let's talk about some of the pros and cons of plastic. Um, some of those, like, corrugated plastic almost that I'm seeing for mm -hmm. edging material around small greenhouses versus glass. Well, plastic is the cheaper option for covering a greenhouse. Typically, you do have, I know what you're referring to with the corrugated plastic, and that's good. It's um, a little sturdier. There are uh, also the plastic, I guess it's a flimsier plastic. It's that polyethylene. That's what most greenhouses today are covered in, is that double, sometimes more than that, but double layer polyethylene. Um, it's just so much cheaper than glass, like uh, a sixth to a tenth of the cost as opposed to a glass covered structure. Um, and then they can be heated exactly the same. The plants grow just as well. One of the downside to plastic is, as we've mentioned, um, it's a, it holds up a little less well to weather and will degrade in the sun over time. So if you had glass, pretty, as long as it doesn't break, will kind of last indefinitely when you're talking about uh, being degraded by the sun. Um, if it's that polyethylene plastic, you can pretty well 
count on having to replace that after about four to five years. It just gets brittle and will just crack and kind of break apart. Um, there's also polycarbonate, I believe is the word I'm looking for, um, plastic in it. It looks, if you were to look that up, you'd be like, oh, okay. And that plastic is sturdier, but one of the downsides to it is it kind of discolors over time, so it can get a little bit cloudy. Also, I've noticed um, like algae will form up into the grooves of it a little bit more so, and you can't like clean out the inside of it. It gets up inside the grooves of that plastic. On our greenhouses back home, that's the plastic that we had on our end walls, um, on one of the end walls, like, but surrounded where the, um, the ventilation, the big vent was. Typically, most often, plastic is cheaper, but you have to know that it has to be replaced. Glass, more expensive, but it might be like a one-time investment. Mm -hmm. And I think on the glass, there's also the concern about the glazing and the edging material and keeping it in place and, and keeping that up. And then you did mention cleaning. So I'd imagine glass is easier to clean. Mm -hmm. um, and some of that plastic material does get that haze to it because of the sun exposure and it's breaking down of the material. Um, so when it gets that haze on it, would you just replace that plastic at that point? Um, you could probably just tell if, if it's still, if your plants are still thriving, it's probably okay. If it's the, if it's that polyethylene that's meant to be replaced after a couple of years anyway. Another thing, it's, it's related to what you said, but uh, when you're talking about glass versus plastic, and we're talking about shading the greenhouse, that you can, if it's a glass covered structure, you can actually like paint on material or like a, a substance that can provide some shading and reduce the temperature and kind of protect those plants. Whereas if you were to do that, if you were to try to apply that to a plastic structure, is you're going to have a lot harder time cleaning that stuff off. Related but unrelated blurb there, but along the same lines. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen that sometimes when you go to a, a greenhouse, it'll have that kind of like that white coating um, applied to the glass. And they, they make it like a one that you actually purchase for that purpose at like mm -hmm. greenhouse supply stores. But I've also seen where you, you just get latex paint and just mix like one part paint to 10 parts water or something and just paint that on. And then you would actually have to get a little elbow grease out there. But you, whenever you're ready for that to be taken off, you just go out there and clean it off. Mm -hmm. So, and it's kind of, it's acting as a shade cloth kind of. Right. And whereas if you had the plastic structure, you might be better off to actually use a legitimate shade cloth. So for greenhouses, cleanliness is really important. So you talked a little bit about the algae creeping up on the sides and other things. What do you clean your greenhouse with? Would you use a bleach solution or, or what do you use? Bleach is good because it's very readily available and cheap. Um, and does it and does a good job. So greenhouse sanitation is just really critical to mainly to keep out plant pathogens and things that can cause uh, plant diseases uh, year after year. It's important to keep the structure itself sanitized, like before every growing season, but also sanitizing those containers that you may be using, like your transplant trays, any pots, um, flats, all of that stuff will need to be sanitized. And bleach is perfectly fine to do that, like a 10% bleach solution um, will do the job. They also have chemicals out there that you can use like oxidate and things like that that are intended to kill some of these pathogens. But um, I think in a, a homeowner situation, bleach will suit you just fine. And so that might kill some of the pathogens. But what about insects that come into your greenhouse? So we talked about how 
rodents and weeds like to come in, everybody mm -hmm. likes the warmth in the wintertime of a greenhouse. So maybe some overwintering pests that come in. I think the key with, with greenhouse pest control is prevention. Because as you said, everybody wants to be in there. And the problem is with these hot, more humid structures, if you get a big insect problem inside, it's going to be way harder to control it. So to keep them out in the first place, it's very important that you inspect any plants you're bringing in before you bring them into the greenhouse. So looking for any diseases and insects. When you're looking for insects, they may not be readily seen. So I always tell people to make sure that they're, you're looking at the undersides of the leaves as well for any like egg masses or any because that's where they want to hide. They're smart. They will avoid you. Look under there and look for their look for signs of them. And if you see a sick plant or a plant that's got an insect problem on it, just don't take it in there at all. Um, because once they establish, it'll be much harder to control. You're more limited on your pesticides that you can use inside of a greenhouse structure. One thing for greenhouse pest control is that you'll hear often that people can rely on beneficial predators. Um, so like ladybugs and, and other things you can you can bring in that will actually do some of that pest control work for you. I really try to express the importance of IPM or integrated pest management with, within these greenhouses and and prevention is really the key here. So I would recommend that you consult with your local extension agent, like maybe before the growing season and say, here's the types of plants that I'm looking to grow. What options for pest control are there, like as far as what's labeled for these crops and what can I do to prevent having an infestation later on? That will save you a lot of time. Hmm. And I can imagine that it'll be different uh, pest that would be for seed starting type little seedlings versus say your tropical plants that you're overwintering um, from the garden. Yeah, different different pests, and they like different different plants, different temperatures. Typically, though, uh, I think some of our most common insect pests that really affect greenhouses are like white flies, fungal gnats, mites, and aphids are really are really bad ones. We have a, a publication that I would recommend everybody that's gardens download it or, or purchase it that Virginia. Um, Cooperative Extension publishes and updates every year. It's um, the pest management guide called Home Grounds and Animals. Um, and within that, it has pest control recommendations for basically every plant that you can think of, um, as well as recommended sprays and information about the type of pests that you may encounter. So if you're wanting to know about the types of bad guys you're trying to fight, I would keep that resource at your disposal. It will serve you well. And so for greenhouses, we had talked about, you know, glass is so much more expensive than some of the plastic, but for sourcing them is that usually you would take measurements and do it by a mail order or have it for a kit, or is there some local supply place they could purchase them at? It completely depends on your budget, I would say, and the size. There are pre-made kits that you can buy from anywhere. If you Googled it, um, if you went to local garden supply stores, and they're at all different sizes. I think the biggest complaint you'll hear from people is that whatever they did put in, they say is not large enough. Um, so I think a good good recommendation is after you, you think about how big you want your structure to be, go bigger, as long as your wallet can afford it. People every time say they, they outgrow it quicker than they think. The kits, though, are easier. They're 
cheaper in certain instances. It really depends on, like I said, the glass versus the plastic. But they are definitely probably easier if you are have less planning time, I suppose, um, and less, uh, less of a DIY person. If you are more of a DIY person, there are a plethora of extension resources even that tell you how to build these structures. This may be something if, I, if you want to follow up with me after this, um, feel free and I can share with you some of these resources that I found. But they are the, um, the plans, the dimensions, the types of material, like the material lists, as well as kind of rough guesses for price. Of course, all of our building supply prices have gone up, as we know, in the recent, uh, recent times. But it's still, it would, might be a, a more cost-effective way if, if you're construction-oriented, I would say. <laughs> And you could also look into maybe used greenhouses mm -hmm. or um, some of the antique ones that you could kind of update. I've even seen people use old storm doors um, that they've got at like a housing rehabilitation yard where you can buy old materials and just piece that together from yeah. windows and storm doors, which is pretty cool. I've seen some really pretty, pretty ones made out of um, just like upcycled windows and the, the frames mm -hmm. for those. Um, like I said, it, it totally depends on um, your size and the, the plants that you're wanting to grow within them. And then the systems you can add, so they can go really sophisticated, right, with drip irrigation. And we talked about some of the computer add-ons and digital systems for venting and opening and controlling the temperature in there. Um, but for the home gardener, they're probably not going to go with that much automation. Yeah, it's, it's kind of just up to you. But like I said, it really, for the home gardener, is going to depend a lot on the amount of time you have to babysit to babysit them because the less automated they are the more that you have to have to be diligent in looking after them and even in the winter if it's a really sunny day these greenhouses can heat up to temperatures that would be damaging for the plants if you're not paying attention to the environment within them. So if you're just relying on you going out there and opening vents and checking the temperature and looking after your plants and keeping them watered and you don't have that automation set up, you can kill your plants even in the wintertime. So just consider consider your time, consider how far away it is from your house. If it's something that you you don't mind walking out there and trudging through the snow to go mess with your plants, all of that you have to think of ahead of time before you decide how automated you want to go. Mm -hmm. And I can imagine that in future years, you could add on a, a, like a drip irrigation system or the vent system after you had the, the basic structure. Yeah, what, what's so hard to change is, is this um, size. It's easier to elongate one, but it's not easy to change the width of one. Hmm. And that's a good point. And what you said before also about go bigger than you think at the start. And I've heard that so many times from uh, water gardeners as well, like mm -hmm. <laughs> that you start off and you think you want a six by nine foot um, water garden, but it, in two years, you're like, I should have doubled it. So same thing I hear with the, the greenhouses as well. And usually what most people start off with is something like an eight by 10, which allows uh, three foot benches on each side in a, in a middle Mm -hmm. kind of aisle there. What do you think is a ideal size for starting off with a home gardener? It really depends on what you want to do with it. Um, that is a good size. And I know some considerations that you might not think of are the width of your benches. Like you don't want it to be wider than you can reach just by standing with your arm. I think I read somewhere that eight by 12 is probably a pretty standard 
standard one. But one of the, um, there's a resource that I found, and if I could remember where I found it, it was an extension publication, but I have it saved. So if you're, if you follow up with me later on, I can get it for you. But um, had plans that were multiple plans for multiple different size structures. I can post that with the show notes and share that with everyone. Yeah, it was um, Louisiana Extension. And they had plans to build all kinds of different types um, and different sizes. One that they had that I think is fairly common is a 9 by 12 wooden frame plastic covered greenhouse. That's their hobby greenhouse size for a 10 by 12. Great. So we'll definitely share that link with everyone too. Lots of options. Great. And so any other concerns or cautions or maybe some success stories for the home greenhouse grower? Yeah, I think mainly with concerns, one thing we haven't talked about is a greenhouse structure can actually be counted as like a a building in certain places. So when you're putting one in, you may need to actually go in and look at like your zoning laws or HOA and see if it's if you're allowed to have one, even in your backyard. Um, I've read that there are several places where you you may not have thought to, to ask but that local building codes and zoning laws and stuff might need to be looked into before you start construction on this just to save you some headache. And I just really want to put in a plug for extension. Like I said before, I don't claim to know to know everything, but I can pretty well find someone who does. So extension is a tremendous resource for you all as far as gardening and really a lot of other any other aspect of your life that you are looking for education on. So they're there for everything from helping plan your greenhouse to dealing with pest control, variety selection for your crops, all of that. So utilize your local extension agent um, throughout this process. That's what they're there for. And they'll try to help you minimize some failures. I've read a lot that that first year with your greenhouse is really going to be a learning curve. It's to figure out what works, figure Mm -hmm. out what doesn't. Um, Journaling is really important, not just for greenhouse gardening, but for gardening in general. So keeping track of the daily temperatures and how you monitored them and kind of the success of your plants and Having that reference to to refer back to year after year is going to make you a more successful gardener. Great, Ashley. And so for those who want to contact you for follow-up, how would they do that? They can contact me at my email. It's uh, aledwards at vt.edu. Or I would recommend you to first off contact your local extension agent um, just because your local agent would be able to come out and do a farm or a visit to your home, actually like look at the structure, walk through this literally with you and help you. And every county, we've got like 120 something extension offices across the state of Virginia. So just Google Virginia Cooperative Extension and then you can go and find your local extension agent and they will be happy to to help you with any types of these gardening or production questions that you may have. Terrific. Thank you, Ashley. And thanks for sharing all your knowledge about greenhouse growing. And I love that about the first year being a trial and error year. So don't think if it didn't go well, that it was a failure. It's just for learning for the next year. That's right. That's right. Thank you again, Ashley. Oh, thank you for having me. This was a wonderful conversation. And like I said, it's a lot at once. So really follow up with your extension agent and that's how we can help you be successful.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Pyracantha plant profile. Firethorn, pyracantha species, is an evergreen shrub that is loaded with colorful red or orange berries. This easy to grow plant can be pruned into various shapes and used as a hedge, espalier, bonsai, or landscape specimen. The best time to prune firethorn is late winter or very early spring, so as not to impact the number of berries you will get later in the growing season. Depending on the variety of firethorn that you select, it is generally hardy to zones 5 to 8 and can grow up to 10 feet wide and high. You can shear it annually to contain the size. The Mojave cultivar was developed at the U.S. National Arboretum and is very heat tolerant. It is also considered to be reliably deer resistant. Firethorn prefers full sun but will tolerate part sun. It likes well-drained sandy soils and is drought tolerant once established. Pick your planting location carefully as it does not like to be moved or transplanted. Firethorn can be propagated by taking cuttings in the summertime. It is in the rose family and has sharp thorns that make it useful as a natural security barrier. Birds and small mammals like to hide inside firethorn and build nests in them as they provide excellent protection from large predators. Birds love to eat the long-lasting berries as well. This plant is originally from Eurasia and is sometimes mistaken for contoniaster, which is thornless. Pyracantha, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, first, I want to say that I am super proud to announce that Garden DC has won the best DC podcast in a contest run by the DC State Fair. And I want to thank all of our past guests. I want to thank our interns who've worked on this program and all of those who voted for us in the contest. Most of all, I want to thank our loyal listeners. You make it all worthwhile. Thank you all so much. Over in our community garden plot, We are picking greens mostly right now. So we've got bok choy, spinach, and cut and come again lettuce. And the radishes are a couple weeks behind that. We finally also pulled the tomatoes and peppers and took the last of the fruits off those vines and then put those into landscape waste. Kept the peppers and tomatoes to see if they'll ripen or we can make some maybe green tomato salsa out of those and put the garlic in their place. In my own home garden, I am awaiting my camellias to open. And these are the fall blooming camellias. We'll be talking about them in a few weeks on a special episode of Garden DC, so look out for that. In the local gardening world, 
I'm pleased to announce that the U.S. Botanic Garden is going to offer an outdoor holiday display this year. It's going to run from Wednesday, November 24th through January 2nd, and it will be closed on Christmas Day itself. So as opposed to their previous year's indoor displays, this is going to be all in the outdoor gardens, and it's going to feature a G-gauge model train that will run between 10 and 5 p.m. every day in the outdoor gardens. There's also going to be light displays, festive decorations, evergreens, and some beautiful, interesting displays that you can see from outside the conservatory looking into the windows of the conservatory so that should be really interesting also happening in the local gardening world there are two outdoor light displays that you can purchase tickets for and then walk through one is the winter walk of lights at meadowlark botanical gardens in vienna virginia and you can purchase tickets online for that through novaparks.com and that one is a half mile long one-way route and it's an enchanting and safe evening activity that one starts november 11th and goes through january 2nd check available dates online the other one is the garden of lights at brookside gardens in wheaton maryland that one you can purchase time tickets for at montgomeryparks.org and that is a walk through outdoor twinkling light displays uh, along the paths and flower beds of Brookside Gardens. So both those are wonderful holiday traditions and I hope you get to take advantage of those if you're in the East DC area. Happy gardening! In the new book, The Urban Garden by Kathy Jensen, Terry Spite, you'll find dozens of inspiring and creative ways to grow flowers, shrubs, vegetables, herbs, and other plants in small spaces and with a limited budget. Whether you want to grow on a balcony, rooftop, front stoop, or a tiny urban patio, turn your growing dreams into reality and build a gorgeous and unique garden that showcases your personal style while still being functional and productive. With the ingenious ideas and resourceful tactics found here, you'll be maximizing yields and beauty from every square inch of your space, while also making Making a lush outdoor living area you'll crave spending time in. The Urban Garden, 101 Ways to Grow Food and Beauty in the City, comes out this spring. You can pre-order it now at Amazon.com and Bookshop.org. Thank you for listening to Garden DC. You can become a listener supporter for as little as 99 cents a month by going to anchor.fm slash garden dc slash support another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to our monthly digital publication washington gardener magazine to do so go to washingtongardener.com thank you Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. 
You can find Washington Gardener online at WashingtonGardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardener, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.